Well, welcome to the Huntback Country podcast as we are continuing in this series, picking five of our favorite episodes from the past five years of the podcast. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed these first couple of episodes as we've taken a look back. And today we're taking a look back to a conversation, actually two parts of a conversation. This is going to be two episodes back to back all in one as we replay it for you guys today with Billy Malls, um, the modern day mountain man, as he has been called. But Billy, as you will hear, is a guide in Alaska who has been at it for, I think, 20 plus years now. Um, a ton of experience on multiple species in Alaska. And at the time that we had this conversation, Steve and I were preparing for our Alaska caribou hunts. Um, Steve at that time had already been to Alaska prior for both a moose hunt and a caribou hunt. And I was preparing for my first experience in Alaska, which I got to have this past fall. Alaska is special for sure. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's one place that many of us have wanted to go to, dreamt about going to. And I will say that uh, in my experience, having taken two trips to Alaska now, it essentially lives up to the hype, man. Like it is a next level, super cool adventure that I would encourage everyone to go on if they can make that happen. And I think you can make it happen. It might take years of planning or saving, but if you make a plan and start saving, you can do it. Uh, And I think it's worth it. So this conversation not only just applies to hunting Alaska, I mean, that's most of what we talk about, but Billy just has some great perspective on really hunting in general. We get uh, a little philosophical, if you will, and talk about how the hunting experience itself, the challenge and the adventure and all of that is greater than the kill. It's greater than just filling the tag. Uh, Billy talks about how on a challenging hunt, you can find out truly who you are and what you're capable of. And that can apply to hunts in Alaska, no doubt, with the unique challenges that Alaska has to offer. But those types of challenges and adventure can be had in many, many places outside of Alaska. So again, we do talk nitty gritty on hunting Alaska and getting into species and meat care and bear encounters and all that stuff that you would want to know about hunting Alaska. But there's a lot more in here too. So Steve and I thoroughly enjoyed these conversations with Billy, appreciate his perspective and knowledge and excited to share it with you guys today. Hope you enjoy this one. Here is Billy Malls. Billy, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast. Thanks for joining us. You betcha. Happy to happy to join you. Yeah, we're excited. Steve, how's it going today, man? Really good. Yeah, excited to talk to Billy here. I think, um, you know, talking about caribou in Alaska, it's uh, obviously we're going on that hunt next year, so it's kind of a selfishly excited to, to learn a few things. Yeah, for sure. So, Billy, just to kind of give listeners context, if you could just introduce yourself and uh, talk about what you're up to, uh, you know, your experience with Alaska, as well as just, you know, the general, I know you put out videos and books and you guide, I mean, you're a super busy guy in the hunting space, but just go ahead and give us uh, kind of that background and context. Okay, yeah, I guess who I am, I'm uh, born and raised on a farm in Wisconsin, I still live in Wisconsin to this day. Grew up, um, you know, like like a lot of hunters, just kind of fascinated by nature. Started trapping at a young age. My grandfather was a professional trapper. In addition to being a farmer, he would spend, he'd go to northern Wisconsin, spend six months out of the winter, build a log cabin, and he'd trap all winter long, come home in the springtime, sell his furs, 
use that money to buy seeds, start a new farming season all over again. So his pictures, his stories, his lifestyle really inspired me. Um, and my dad, I was eight years old, and I kind of re- I basically recall it like it was yesterday. We milked the cows one Saturday morning and threw a rowboat in the back of our truck and a pile of rusty traps and some alder stakes and went to this little creek, Lightning Creek, just three miles down, down the road from my house. We shoved into the slow, sluggish current, and we oared away from the road, and then I saw the road disappear as we rounded the bend. Pretty soon, Henry Hines' house disappeared. The telephone line disappeared, and then I was surrounded by nature, and I just, it was like a lightning bolt moment almost. I just instantly right there, I knew this is how I wanted to live my life. I wanted to, I wanted to live my life in totally remote, untouched places where there's no evidence of man. Something in me came alive. And so I, my grandpa, we were skinning a beaver one time years later, and he said, if you want outdoor adventure, you need to go to Alaska. So that's where my focus became, and I wanted to hunt in Alaska. I figured I'll never be able to afford to hunt there. I mean, growing up, we never went on vacations. We, we always had food on the table, but, you know, it was pretty much a hand-to-mouth existence. So I figured, well, if I want to go to Alaska, I'm going to have to make a, a career out of it and uh, kind of come in the back door to some of these adventures. And um Long story short, ended up in, in Alaska and uh, worked as a packer for a couple of years. And now, 21 years later, still guiding there, um, spending anywhere from 80 to 110 days and 90 to 110. Pretty much 100 is about the average anymore now, days out of the year in the bush, guiding in the Brooks Range, western Alaska, Alaska Peninsula. Um, Kodiak, Southeast Alaska, Central Alaska, kind of guided more or less all over the state except for extreme Southeast Alaska. Um, so yeah, I still love it. And I guess, you know, the, like all of us, our experiences in the wilderness kind of change who we are, or mold our life, or to some degree, you know, our, our life revolves around uh, largely our experiences in the wilderness because they're some of the most um, intimate, personal experiences, life-changing events, especially when you're in the wilderness. As the old saying goes, adventure begins when things go wrong, and you you experience hardship and difficult times, and you overcome obstacles, and it really changes your perspectives on life. And I'd say that's ultimately who I am and what the modern-day mountain man brand is about is um, just the simplicity of life. It's the adventure I'm not a big guy. I mean, I, as far as like scores go and all that stuff, it's interesting and it's all good and it's great, you know, resource management. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm more enthralled by what I learn about myself uh, in the wilderness, what I learn about nature, um, the fact that I'm able to share my passion with other people, the friendships that I make with other guides, pilots, uh, other clients. Um, that's, that's what it's about for me is just, just the life experience and the connectivity to God and the understanding of nature. And I went to Alaska. I wanted to shoot a caribou and a moose and a doll sheep, all that stuff. 21 years later, I've never shot a big game animal for myself in Alaska and probably guided for well over 200, probably closing in on 300 animals in Alaska. So at this point, I really don't have that desire is really gone but I still love it. And my time in the wilderness is maybe more valuable than ever now that I'm a father of three. And as I grow older, the the ability to go experience the wilderness is every bit as important to me as it's ever been. So, 
I guess that's uh, that's probably the long version of who I am and what Alaska is to me. Yeah, that's awesome. So after all these years, you still haven't uh, essentially hunted for yourself then in those 20 plus seasons? Nope, never even bought a tag. I can't, wow. uh, I can't afford to hire myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's wild, man. What are, going back to like your first experience in Alaska and then tying to uh, listeners as they're hearing this episode, maybe their first experience in Alaska, what are some of the misconceptions about Alaska? Um, what are some of the things that maybe people get wrong about it or don't fully understand? Um, help us as beginners with Alaska and maybe tie that back to some of your beginning experiences about really getting up there and experiencing Alaska for what it is and not just what we think it might be. Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah. Pretty calm, pretty Simple, but yet uh, probably for me, being pretty verbose, probably the ability or uh, has the makings for a long answer, so I'll try to keep it short and concise. But um, probably the biggest misconception I find is that people have a, a sense that there's animals everywhere. You know, you hear a lot of, you either hear the horror stories and then you hear the, the grandiose success stories, right? You don't hear about the doldrums, about the, you know, three days of just sitting with the in a storm and the wind slapping you in the face. Uh, you don't hear about the five days that, you know, you sit on a hill and you don't see a, an animal. Um, so there's a lot of that. I think Alaskan hunting adventure is uh, the biggest, the biggest thing that you do is you endure and combat the elements in patient waiting for your opportunity, you know, and it usually comes provided you're hunting in a, you know, a decent area. Um, obviously you hunt a better area, you get more opportunities, you know, that's, that's what it's all about. But no matter where you are, I mean, I didn't think it would be possible where I died on the Alaska peninsula to have a guy not kill a big bear. You know, I'm, uh, after 17 years of guiding down there, my, my confidence was really high. This was a few years back. And, you know, it was, in my mind, it was just kind of a sure thing that, you know, you're patient enough, you'll kill a big bear. And I had two brothers that had hunted with me a few times. And, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this spot that I hunt will, you guys will both kill big bears. I've never had a client not shoot a, a bear over nine foot there. It's, it's a no-brainer. Well, they hunted 10 days, and neither one of them shot a bear. We saw a couple of really big bears, but the salmon spawns were so strong that summer that all the big mature bears were basically nocturnal. And when we did see bears, it was just the first. They're so smart. A brown bear and grizzly bear looks makes a black bear look like an idiot. They're, they're so intelligent. So if they don't have to feed, they don't. They're just so reclusive naturally, even though there's no people there. Um, so we'd see a couple of big bears. 15 minutes into into the morning and then that was it they'd go into the brush and hide there's no way you can get them so they hunted 10 days one day we saw 35 for sure different bears in one day but there was no big boars and they you know they wanted to shoot a mature bear they didn't want to just shoot a bear so long story short here you are in the best clay one of the best very best brown bear areas in the whole entire state they hunted 10 days and you know they went home without anything so um, there's that. It's just that, you know, your nature is a powerful thing. And if you try to fight it, you're, you know, you're going to lose. You know, you can only, you can only take what she's going to give you. You know, you can do your best, but beyond that, that's all you can do. 
So another misconception, so I guess that's number one, is that, you know, it's not all just, you know, there's a herd of 40,000 caribou marching through your camp. That, you know, that stuff rarely happens. Uh, the other misconception, or I guess a piece of advice that I kind of tell people, it's maybe a little bit blunt, and I hope it doesn't sound arrogant, but if you want to enjoy your experience, if you're if you go there with the mindset that you have to kill something to come home, and feel successful or um uh to i guess if you can't stand the thought this i guess the way i put it maybe in just layman's terms if you can't stand the thought of going on the on an alaskan adventure and coming home without something if that would be really hard for you to accept i would say you're not ready to do it yet because what happens because i've seen a lot of hunters with that attitude and what typically happens unless things just go swimmingly well and the first day or two they kill an animal is they will spend their whole time in Alaska worried and frustrated. And their whole mindset is what if I don't get something, you know, what this isn't going the way I planned. And then they're not able to enjoy the experience. You know, you're going to one of the most magical places on earth, the last frontier of North America. And so I think you have to go into the mindset that, hey, I'm going I'm to hunt as hard as I can, but even still, there's a chance I'm going to go home without something here, no matter what the booking agent or the, um, the um, um, transporter or my guide, whatever he's told me, I don't care who it is, there's always a chance things are just going to go completely wrong and you might come home with nothing but some pictures and some memories. And, you know, after, you know, 21 years, a lot of like the kill shots, I don't really remember them, you know, I, because they're all about the same to me. What's, what I remember about a hunt is, you know, the one caribou hunt where my client fell down in the river and I jumped in to grab him. And there was about three seconds there that I thought we were both going to die. You know, the shooting of a caribou at that point doesn't matter, you know, or the guy that's, um, every, uh, the guy that had two artificial knees, you know, it wasn't really about, you know, shooting the sheep. It, it was all about his, uh, 40 years of wondering if he could actually do it. And he comes to Alaska at the age of 60 and he actually does it. So uh, the killing of the animals, it's a, it's a great climax, climax, I guess, but that's really not, it, it probably most of the time it's not going to be, in my opinion, it's usually not going to be the thing that you're going to remember about your experience 20 years later. It's going to be the details. And so if you go into that hunt, putting too much pressure on yourself about killing an animal, you're going to miss a lot of the subtleties that will just brew or like permeate your, your inner being or your soul or, or whatever throughout your life. Uh, that's the stuff. Does that make, kind of make sense? Yeah, no, it's yeah, good stuff really. for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, and I would say probably to connect it to my first experience, I was on Kodiak Island and I was uh, uh, I was a packer, so kind of a guide in training. Basically, I was a human mule. We were hunting in, uh, um, uh, let's see, what was the Uyak Bay, and we would hike up this, they called it the East Fork, this real long drainage. Uh, it was nine miles to our spike camp and we hiked up in there with 12 days of food and we had hip boots on. So it was me, the guide and the client. 
and the client was videotaping his his whole hunt and we get up there and we end up shooting this bear in this ridiculous spot way up in the snow i didn't have snowshoes and my hip boots filled with water because the snow i'd like go through the break through the snow to my crotch the only thing that would stop me from going you know all the way to the bottom of the snow i don't know how deep the snow was was my crotch and so the hip boots would fill with snow and so they're filled with water uh the guide and the hunter uh, they both had snowshoes so they were able to walk on top and i'm sinking through every step so we get to this bear and he's bedded on the ledge of this crevasse and if we shoot him and he falls into the crevasse the guide knew that he couldn't get into that crevasse so we sat there and we waited for like, I don't know, three, four hours for the bear to get up. And finally it's dark and I'm like shivering and hypothermic, you know, and finally he realizes, hey, we got to scare this bear up, get him up into this avalanche slide. So these snow boulders, if we can shoot the bear, then the bear, if he does roll, he'll get hung up on these snow boulders, which is what we did. So we shot the bear late at night. It was a huge bear. I filmed the hunter shooting. That's what got me started on filming all my hunts was the fact that that hunter shared all the footage from his experience um, with my parents later on when I was still in Alaska, he mailed it to my parents. So that inspired me to videotape all my hunts. But I guess where uh, the big uh, first experience for Alaska came from me is in packing that bear hide, which weighed all of 150 pounds. I had a 10-pound rifle, 10-pound pack, probably 10 pounds of my own gear. So the pack was about Oh, 100, 180 conservatively, huge bear. It was 10 foot eight. It was the number 24 Boone and Crockett when it was shot. And we didn't flush it all that well, but uh, the guy that was with, he was kind of anxious to get back to base camp because there was like 10 cases of beer there. So he didn't really want to hang out in fight camp any longer. And so in hiking that thing back, I made it probably about two thirds of the way. So I'll, let's just say for sake of argument, about six miles. And he was in a big hurry because we had a rubber raft, a Zodiac, sitting there on the shore. And he wanted to get there at high tide so we didn't have to drag the, uh, uh, the Zodiac miles out to get to the ocean with the tide receding. And it was so hard. We crossed the creek so many times. My hip boots are wet. My pack is so heavy. And I'm getting so exhausted climbing these three to five foot cut banks with 180 pounds on my back and hip boots. And I'm just, my, in my mind, I'm just thinking, I, I can't do it. I can't go nine miles with this pack. I can't do it. I can't do it. I didn't want to let the guide down and I'm pushing as hard as I can, but I'm going, slowing down. And the guide's back probably weighed 120, 130 pounds in his own right. But, you know, my job, that was my one and only job was to get that pack of meat out of the bush, right? And so finally he's just laying, he's sitting down when I catch up to him and he says, give me your pack. I'm like, no, I, I can do it. And I knew I couldn't. And uh, so we switched packs, which his pack felt like a feather for about the first, I don't know, hundred yards. And then after that, it was just heavy, stupid heavy too. Um, but that whole, that last three miles when I was carrying his pack, I'm like, oh, what's he going to tell, you know, my boss. And, you know, I guess if my dream is all for naught, I failed, I can't do it, you know. Well, then we get to the uh, get to the salt water, and the tide's going out, and it's like 300 yards away. So we load the moat. We had to mount the motor because we took that off. Um, so the bears went to the cowling, and we threw the gas, and they're in survival suits and our heavy packs and the bear hide. So now kind of like a, a scene out of uh, 
um, seal training or something, the three of us are carrying this raft and running through the sandy ocean floor trying to get to the receding tide water so we didn't have to wait, you know, 10 hours for it to come back in. And I'm just dying. My legs are burning. And, you know, at that point, I wasn't having the romance of hunting in Alaska. just wasn't there. And I'm still wondering if I can even, if I've got the, the balls and, and the ability and the strength to handle this job. Long story short, we get the, uh, the Zodiac, the motor running, and we get to the water, and we take off, and we've got about a five-mile cruise up to our original base camp. And I'm just sitting there looking at the mountains and thinking about my grandpa who told me to come here and kind of wondering if this is my la- this is my one and only experience that I'll ever get in Alaska because I'm not man enough to do this. And about the time I was feeling really, really low is that uh, the guide punched me in the, in the uh, thigh, and the guide was a guy of very few words. And he goes, you did pretty damn good. You made it farther than I thought you would. And it was like <laughs> a million pounds where it was let, you know, released off my shoulders. And that's what I figured about. That's it. That's what Alaska is all about to me is you find out who you are and what you're capable, capable of. My best adventures my greatest stories, my greatest, the greatest hunts I've ever been on is when I've been pitted against something that was bigger than me. And then I had to dig deep, whether I'm either just, you know, um, whether that's just growth and I'm, um, you know, finding what I'm, what I'm made of or, or am I actually, um, you know, am I growing? Am I uh, becoming a better person or is that person in me? that I just don't understand it, whatever the case is, you get through, you get into a tough situation and you're the only one that can get yourself out of it. It, it really helps a person grow. Uh, it helps you grow personally, I guess, emotionally, spiritually, um, physically. It helps you in all aspects of life. And I think that's, for me, that's the most beautiful, wonderful thing about my time in Alaska. That's awesome, man. Very well said, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, as we mentioned, Steve and I are going up with a group with some other guys in 2019 to hunt caribou. Uh, a couple of the guys, including Steve, have been to Alaska before, but for several of us, it'll be the first trip to Alaska. Do you think in general that caribou is a good place to start uh, for an Alaskan hunt? I'm just thinking of listeners who are out there and thinking, I got to get to Alaska one day. Would you recommend caribou as a starting place or something else, or is it... Uh, you know, not necessarily the case where you maybe should or shouldn't start with a certain type of species or certain type of hunt. Nope. I think you guys are doing it spot on. That's what I tell everybody is go do a caribou because that's so unique. Uh, I've been on Kodiak. Uh, I've guided there for probably about seven or eight years. So you could do blacktail deer uh, without a guide for those who don't know to hunt grizzly bear, brown bear, mountain goat, doll sheep, um, I don't think I'm missing anything there. You would need a guide as a non-resident to hunt them. So you don't need a guide for moose, caribou, black bear, uh, to black-tailed deer, wolf, wolverine, muskox. I guess you don't need a guide, but there's very little opportunity for muskox. Um, so I, I definitely recommend a caribou. You get that. Typically, you're able to get that Alaskan experience where uh, you experience the vastness, the loneliness, um, wh- which I think is what makes Alaska unique. 
so I, I think you're doing it spot on. Okay, cool. Can you give us maybe some high-level understanding of caribou? Um, I'm sure that listeners know what they are, but I'm, I'm just for me personally, when I go to hunt a species, I want, I want to know about it. Like I want to understand the species and not just show up and go, yeah, there's one, let's go shoot it. Um, and so, you know, I've done some research and reading in terms of the basics, but you know, you read about the different herds in Alaska. Um, and obviously it's, you're hunting at a time when they're in migration, but I haven't really gotten in depth to understand, uh, why maybe they're herded the way they are, why they're migrating during that time of the year. Can you just kind of give us some understanding of caribou in general, their behavior, um, and just help us understand more about them? Dude, you're going to do pretty well in this podcast business. You ask good questions. I, say, <laughs> I, I mean, I already tell you and I need to share some whiskey sometime. I like Let's it. Do you it. Got a pretty good, you got like the, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of a quasi- get half drunk philosopher kind of a guy. So, <laughs> I, like it. I think that's the mentality. That's it. That's it. I mean, that's it. You, what you're hitting on is what makes me tick is if you want to, if you want to go hunt an animal and you want to do it successfully, you've got to think like the animal, you know, you, you, as a hunter, for me, I've asked myself the question why about, three trillion times and that's 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 what's beautiful about it that's the art of hunting and it's it's i call it an art because there is there it's not black and white right you're going to learn something all the time you you never have it figured out but the thing with nature is there's a reason for everything there's there's a reason every animal does everything they don't they're not doing things by emotion they're doing things because they have a set objective in life and they never stray from that objective. And so the, the more you can fine tune the animal's objective, which is basically to grow strong and prosperous until it dies so that it can give back the most to nature. That's every organism in nature's um, goal, purpose for existence. And they never stray from that. So they're pretty simple like that. However, um, their, their exact purpose, there's, there's, no, there's no finite definition. So you're always, you're always fine-tuning your perception or understanding or belief of what that animal thinks and is doing. So to get to your, uh, to try to answer your question, so a caribou in a herd is completely different from a caribou that is alone. A caribou that is alone, oftentimes, you know, it all depends on what's been going on for them in the last, you know, let's just say maybe a week or maybe a month. You know, if there's a pack of wolves working around and they've been, you know, chased a few times, they're going to be more flighty. If they, if they haven't seen anybody, they, they'll kind of get a little more complacent because what they're trying to do is eat and get as strong as they possibly can. They're very lean animals. Um, they're food source. They're not used to ever being real fat and sassy, right? And they've got a tough winter. So they're kind of like a deer or an elk in the wintertime. They throw caution into the wind, and they go down by the roads because they, they need food. They're, they're craving for food. It becomes more important than their need for 
seclusion and protection from predators as they become more hungry. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the caribou, they do the same thing. If, if they're secure, they're going to be more, more bold. And if they need the feed, uh, if they're, you know, times are kind of tough, they're going to be less uh, wary. And if they're being pressured less, they're going to be um, less wary. So if you get a herd of uh, 40, let's say 40 caribou, um, they know that there's a 1 in 40 chance that a predator is going to kill them. If you have one caribou, there's a 1 in 1 chance that a, a predator is going to try to kill them. You know, 100% of the time, if there's a predator, you can bet, you know, not well, a, a wolf isn't going to chase after them every time. But as far as the caribou is concerned, if he's all alone and he sees a wolf, he's going to be pretty darn skittish. And he's, he's going to be very nervous. So you get a herd of 700. So me and a hunter, we come out of the sheep mountains and he has a caribou tag. And there's a herd of 700 caribou walking downstream and they're strung out over a course of a mile and a half. The big bulls, of course, they're in the back. You know, they want everybody else to go through the danger zone before they do. And so what we did is we basically had to get in front of the herd, and we kind of like, for lack of better terms, waded through about 650 caribou before we could get to the big bull. How did we do that? We would just sit down, and the caribou would pass 10 yards past us, and they'd be nervous, and they'd see us moving they knew we weren't right, but because there was so many there, they weren't nearly as flighty as they would have been had there been, you know, 20 or 30 or maybe even 100. But they had that strength in numbers. That's why they cling in herds is if one caribou walks past a wolf, that one caribou very likely to get chased by that wolf. If there's a herd of 700, one caribou really only one is probably going to get killed, you know, even if it's a pack. They're going to pick on one. They might, you know, kind of they'll go after the whole herd, but ultimately it's the one that makes the mistake that the entire pack is going to try to kill. So those caribou know that. So they can let their guard down because they need to feed. Their need for nutrition is so strong, and they never stop moving because they don't want to be a sitting duck for their predators. So they're burning a lot of calories, that said, they basically, when they're up on their feet, they're feeding, you know. So, so for us to shoot that big bull, it was just, you know, at that point, for me, probably 13 years of caribou experience that gave me the confidence to do approach the herd the way I did is we would just kind of watch the big bull in the back as the caribou are basically filtering past us, and we would just slowly move, usually laterally, is really all we moved. The valley was about two miles wide, and, you know, the bulls are kind of zigzagging back and forth. And so anytime the caribou around us would get nervous, we would just sit down, let those caribou pass, and then just slowly maneuver a little bit. And, you know, the whole herd was really quite calm. Had we had one caribou really blown, had we been too aggressive, then, you know, one of the caribou would probably bolted, and then potentially the whole herd, you know, would have bolted, obviously. But just by, it, it's, the art of hunting probably boils down to the art of 
patience and aggression. And so we just tried to balance that out. Long story short, the bull walked, I don't know, 80 yards, 100 yards maybe, and the guy shot it with a rifle. You know, it was a real big bull. But, um, you know, that, that was the key to the hunt for me, or the experience was um, we learned so much about um, the dynamic of a caribou herd in that experience. That's, I mean, that, that's something I'll never forget. And it's made me a much better hunter because I actually, you know, hypothesized that it would work and it did. Hmm. So that's, that's a, a good look, I guess, at the herd dynamic of why they do what they do. And knowing that helps you as a hunter. So I guess the point of it is the more caribou there are, the more aggressive you can be and the more aggressive you should be. The fewer caribou there are, the less aggressive you should be. So like if there's one or very few caribou, you know, just getting in close to where they see you. And if they do spot you, then you can just hold up a white bag. A lot of times that'll work. You know, they'll be curious enough and they're, they recognize, Oh, that might probably another caribou. If I joined up with him, I'd have a little bit more security. Um, so sometimes that'll work. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of dynamics. I certainly don't understand them all. I'm still figuring it out, but um, that's probably, those are the main ones is just understanding the herd dynamic as you're hunting them is, is pretty, pretty key. Yeah, man, there's so much in there. I want to come back to, um, I'm curious throughout the hunting season, does the herd dynamic change? So is the herd getting larger as the season progresses or are there any other differences you'd highlight in terms of say hunting mid August versus hunting mid September? Um, yeah. Weather, you know, weather is a big factor. Every year is different. Um, I dare say, you know, the travel patterns and migrations, if you will. You know, usually when people talk about the great migrations of caribou, that's generally in the spring uh, when they're calving. Um, definitely can be in the summer, definitely can be in the fall. Um, I guess in my experience, uh, the bulls early, let's say in August, late July, um, into August, and let's say to the uh, the latter part of August, I won't say the end and into September, but up till the latter part of August, generally it's young bulls, cows, and calves are in herds together. For the most part, there's definitely exceptions to that. I mean, it's, you'll see big bulls with cows and calves too, but oftentimes for it all depends where you're hunting, I guess, but uh, as far as what you're going to see in, in your area, what's going to be best that time of year. But usually as it gets later into the season, um, beginning in the latter part of August, and my all of my caribou hunting experience has been in the north side of the Brooks Range, um, is that you'll get the larger bulls will start, start joining with the herds sometime late August, early September. Um, so like I, it's been happening oftentimes where I'll hunt 30 days, let's say, and I'm in caribou country, whether I'm hunting caribou the whole 30 days, I, I usually don't do that. It's more of an additional species on a grizzly hunt or a, uh, sheep hunt, but oftentimes we'll be seeing caribou throughout the season is you might, I might hunt 30 days, see, let's say 5,000 caribou and I'll see a band of six or seven bulls or maybe 15 bulls probably six or seven in this case would probably be more realistic and it'll be in that band will be the six or seven biggest bulls i've seen 
all year in in comparison to all, all 5,000. The five biggest I've seen are in that one herd. All five of them will be the biggest ones I've seen. So there's, there's some of that, those big bulls. Uh, and I think, you, you know, I, I guess I haven't seen that. I've seen that a little bit with elk um, in the Rocky Mountains. I'm sure there's other animals that'll do that. I've seen it a little bit with bull moose. But more so with caribou, if you see exceptionally big bulls, you know, let's say you get landed in a spot and you're seeing a lot of big, big bulls, that's, I don't know, for some reason they seem to kind of congregate together like that. It's just one of the anomalies that I've noticed from caribou versus other animals. They kind of oftentimes run together now come late September and October into the rut. You know, obviously I'm sure those big bulls are, those bachelor groups obviously are splitting up and they're going elsewhere and joining different herds of cows and breeding. But that time of year, oftentimes those biggest, oldest, mature bulls are together. Yeah, that is interesting. Hopefully we get landed in the spot where all the big bulls are then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and that's, and that's one thing to watch for that I would say is a, a fairly common mistake, I guess if you want to call it a mistake. But a lot of guys, they'll see a herd of 300 caribou well, if you haven't looked at a lot of caribou, if you see 300 caribou and there's, you know, 20 bulls in the group, kind of just human instinct or human nature, you're going to kind of think that, well, boy, that's the biggest out of 300. It must be a pretty big one, but that's often not the case. It might be the biggest out of 300, but it might be, you know, a two and three, a three and a half year old bull and it's quite small and you shoot it. And like I say, here over the hill comes 30 bulls and every one of them is twice as big as the one you just shot. So really studying, having a good idea of what a trophy bull uh, caribou looks like, that's pretty key for the do-it-yourselfer, particularly your first time or two out. Um, mm-hmm. so it's hard to be objective if you heard, and you might see a herd of five or 600, and there's no big bulls in the group. But to be able to, to know that, Hey, that's that's not a big bull. Even though it's the biggest out of five hundred, it's still not big. Do you have some general guidelines for sizing them up? Um, you know, I'm not a. I do, and I'll I'll share whatever I know. But I'm not a. I'm more of a. Just. I, I don't have a, a lot of just real set criteria. I guess maybe because I've never. Um, taught somebody, I guess. Uh-huh. This year I had a packer, a good young packer working with me for with sheep hunting. And he was real young, easy to, or uh, wasn't that young, I guess he was young to me. Uh, he's three years younger than I was, so I consider him young. Uh, <laughs> but he was hard working and real eager. So I found myself teaching him. And as they say, if you want to learn something, you teach it. And so for the first time I was ever really giving somebody uh, as detailed uh, lessons or teaching as I possibly could. And I I really found that I learned a lot in teaching him, but I guess for caribou, I just kind of look at them. And I, at this point, after 20 years, you know, probably like whatever animals you guys hunt the most, you probably don't even know how or why you would say something about an animal or how or why you would approach an animal a certain way. You just know it because you've done it enough. Um, So that's kind of how it is for me. But um, so don't take this as gospel is look for 
our caribou in the Brooks Range are fairly small in the north there. But you look for a rack that's as high as the caribou is tall. Hmm. The biggest the biggest thing is you look for a sweeping curve of the main beam of the antler. And if you see the main beam, if it's as tall as the caribou is, if the, the rack overall is as tall as the caribou is, and the antler swoops back, and then the main beam comes up and goes flat, that's a pretty good sign. And if you see the main beam start to grow down, down towards in front of the nose, that's a very, very good sign. You probably have a very mature bull at that point, you know, assuming that you have good mass, brows, bezels, all that stuff, good top points, then you're looking at a giant. And if he's, um, I look for a, for a trophy caribou, I look for a body and a half in spread. And also the first thing I key in on, if you see a, a herd of caribou, is look at look for the whitest caribou there is. That's usually going to be your oldest bull. Or awesome. one of the older bulls. Yeah. One thing you mentioned there that I thought was, so I went up on south side of the Brooks Range uh, last year, and we were shocked once we both kill, killed bulls how small they were. I mean, they were essentially big mule deer. So that is a smaller uh, kind of species of them up there versus other parts of Alaska? Yeah. Yeah, you get down like on the Alaska Peninsula. I've heard guys say they're six, 700 pounds. Um, I've seen them down there when I'm bear hunting, but I've never been down there in the fall. We are just able to start hunting them again here, I guess, last year or the year before. I, I don't just remember. I, I haven't personally hunted them down there. But they're much bigger bodied down there. Um, and that, that, that interests me because I know there's a reason for that, you know, whether that's just a food value or what it is. But obviously in the Arctic, a uh, little bit drier where I think those, I'm guessing it has something to do with the moisture of air down on the Alaska Peninsula by the Bering Sea. They, I'm guessing they have to be a little bit bigger in body size. It must uh, serve them. They've adapted to be a little bit bigger in body size that they're able to survive in that damper climate or something in their food, um, the reason why they're bigger. But I, I, it's my understanding, and I would say it's probably roughly true, close to being true if it's not exactly but I would say the caribou down there are darn near twice the size of the ones up in the brooks. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. And so we, we kill, I mean, you just, we glassed them for five days and then you, we finally kill one and you're standing over the top of it and going, holy cow, these, these things are kind of small. Uh, at least it's a, definitely just a big mule deer. Yeah. And that's one reason why it's easy to get fooled on their antlers. You know, you look at the antlers in proportion to the body and they look really impressive you walk up to them and you scratch your head a little bit. So brown <laughs> is nothing new for any hunter, but yeah, you go on that trip. Uh, yeah, you you, you know you want to be as informed as you can be on what you're shooting. So yeah. So just as a a general tactic, Billy, in terms of you mentioned caribou are often moving, uh, even if they're feeding, they're moving. So is it generally better when you spot a group of caribou to try and anticipate their direction and get ahead of them versus just chase them direct on and kind of play that cat and mouse game of their moving, you're moving, um, and essentially go for more of a cutoff approach? Absolutely. Yep. You're the caribou that had, that you've been seeing, you should be studying them and watching landmarks where they're going. Even the smaller caribou, you know, the day that you arrive, um, you know, just kind of glass, 
look for a couple of bulls, probably primarily try to identify a few characteristics of them. Uh, let's say if you got some particularly a big bull or some funky antlered bull, right? So then you wake up the next morning, okay, are those bulls still around? Then you get a pretty good idea of what the herd is doing. You know, sometimes the herd will be comfortable in an area and they're just kind of milling around. You know, they're not, they're never sitting still, but they're not really, they're not migrating, if you will, um, or, you know, just passing through. Or you wake up in the morning and everything's new and clearly the caribou are marching past. You know, look at those landmarks that they seem to be going past the most because the other caribou are going to smell that same trail and they're going to recognize that. It's going to give them security to know that, hey, this is a safe passage route. Oftentimes, they'll use those same routes as the caribou in front of them. So certainly most of the time, I would say most of the time, you're cutting them off to some degree. You know, you're getting in front of them. It's not often that they're just staying put. Um, it's less likely that they're just kind of staying in an area, unless they're real close. Let's say they're within a mile of you. Yeah. Then, you know, if they're moving slow, you can more or less just stalk them and know they're going to be close. But if a caribou is a a couple of miles away, you for sure, no matter how fast he's moving, you've probably got to anticipate the general direction of flow of where the, the herd is generally flowing. And there usually is a, uh, a pretty noticeable direction that they're moving, usually. If you're in the mountains, uh, a lot of times the caribou will meet, be more secure and they won't move around as much. But if you're out in the open tundra, they're usually moving. Sometimes if you're on the edge of the mountain, they might, especially early in the season if bugs are bad, um, they'll cling up into the mountains during the day or a pack of ice and they'll lay on that to get away from the bugs. And then in the evening, if it cools off, then they'll spill out, you know, kind of like a herd of elk. Then they'll spill out into the tundra flats, and then they'll go back first thing in the morning to the mountain. So every scenario, I guess that's another one of the beauties, is every scenario is just a little bit different. Um, but the one thing that I would say is don't ever try to catch uh, a moving uh, relic. Because if they're feeding, if they're, like, basically walking and feeding, they're probably going four to five miles an hour, which in the tundra for a human is basically impossible to sustain. So I always kind of go, I would say like two miles. Um, if they're kind of angling some uh, direction toward me, if they're within two miles and I think I've got a shot, that's probably about a good cutoff. If they're, if they're any farther than two miles and they're, you know, more or less angling away from you and you believe their direction of travel will continue away from you, you're better off not even trying. Just stay put where you're at and hope another herd comes by or otherwise six hours later you'll still be chasing that herd and you'll look back by your tent and there's a big bull caribou standing there. It's about all that usually. Yeah, it's just an educated guess is all it is. So okay. you're going to get, I think you're going to get more information by, you know, your whatever caribou you see before you, you're planning that stock than what I could probably give you other than just, you know, you just got to trust your instinct at that point, but it's all over the map. But yes, usually you're, you're going to be cutting them off. So. I was, I was uh, talking to a buddy the other day about caribou hunting and, and based off my experience, he's a big salmon fisherman. And I was like, just any caribou that is you 
is it in front of you that is like you're not glassing coming towards you two miles away just consider a fish that swam by you like you're not you can't go get it you're pretty so well basically yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely If, if they're moving if they're in a mooding a moving mindset yeah you're yeah don't even bother yeah yeah what is your uh preferred glassing setup for caribou billy um, just get somewhere, uh, somewhere fairly close to camp. I mean, I usually don't stray far. Um, I just get an eight by 10 tarp or 10 by 10 or whatever, and, uh, have some sort of shelter. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm usually you're in fairly open country, so I don't ever use like a spotting scope, rest the binoculars on it, especially up in the Arctic where I hunt. They're either there for God and everybody to see, or they're not there. You know, there's, it's not like a, hunting a early season mule deer where you got her a bighorn sheep where you're trying to pick apart every bush. It's nothing like that. So basically just some binoculars and a decent spotting scope to have an idea what you're, what you're working with. But uh, unless you're hunting some rolling terrain, I find that you're better off just kind of staying put in one spot and get a, get a good feel for what the animals are doing in your area. You know, if you go to a new uh, knob or hill every day and you're looking at new country well that's good you know if the caribou you you see are really just hanging in an area you know if they're just hanging in little pockets which is pretty rare for caribou yeah then it probably behooves you to go check different basins that might be around but otherwise just find your best vantage point close to camp and just sit there and watch and uh, wait for the right opportunity and you figure you got a good chance uh, you go like mad and hopefully it works out yeah. How much does the, so I, it's just difficult for me to associate, you know, thinking of like experience elk hunting, for example, and making an approach on a bull versus being in this more open country, dealing with this larger herd, a greater distance, and then making an approach on, you know, a herd that you might've glassed up. How much does wind factor into how you make an approach or if you make an approach into a herd of caribou that you've maybe glassed? Oh, yeah, you you, de- you definitely got to watch the wind. Uh, they'll wind you from a long ways off. So, um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, in a big herd, like that herd of 700, I mean, we were surrounded by the herd, and they never, you know, none of them ever boogered, and they, they certainly will blow out when they smell you. Um, but I think there again, that was just one of those things with that bigger herd they threw caution into the wind because they saw, hey, the chances of me getting killed are so small right now. I'm not even going to worry about it. I'm just going to feed. So if you have a small herd, definitely you got to watch the wind. I would say they're, they're sometimes they're not that wary of it. It's kind of strange. A lot of times I always say uh, a first-time caribou hunter in many situations is better than a, a guy that's hunted them for 30 years of his life. Because the thing with a caribou is, is they're so unpredictable. They're so, they're so dependent on a herd. And they, I don't even think they totally understand the herd dynamic. Because sometimes one caribou will just fart or snort or something and the whole thing will blow up. Other times, you know, you'll be by one or you'll shoot one. And the herd basically will startle and three seconds later, every caribou that's still surviving just goes right back to feeding. So they're very, very unpredictable. So you kind of got to expect anything and everything. And they're pretty hard to put a pin down as far as 
you know, what will work and what won't work. So if you think you've got a chance in caribou hunting, you know, basically don't ever chase one. But if you think you've got a chance in caribou hunting, go for it. That's probably the best uh, uh, piece of advice. And one other thing I will say is if you have a caribou, like a herd that's working towards you, I've had this happen many times, is you'll see caribou. Everybody that's hunted caribou for any length of time has had this happen. They'll be working towards you. You'll see them five, six miles away, and they're headed right to you, right? And you, and you sit there and wait, and they'll, they'll walk five miles right to you. They're still a mile away, and then all of a sudden they'll turn around. The wind won't have changed. Seemingly nothing has changed. They'll just turn around, and they'll go right back the way they came. So, you know, you, <laughs> if, so like usually in a situation like that, if I see caribou that are working to me, you know, a lot of times I'll just slowly kind of work towards them to try to eliminate that because I have had that happen a lot of times. If they're moving slow, particularly, don't count on them always moving slow and definitely don't count on them just continuing right to you. My advice would be in that situation, let's say they're moving at two miles an hour feeding, probably just start working in, be cautious, but kind of work towards them. Don't, don't, don't allow too much time to wait for them because they, they'll change their mind so often. Good stuff. What advice do you have as you've closed that distance for then kind of getting into that final, and obviously this is dependent on what somebody feels comfortable with in terms of shot distance and things like that, but the final approach, uh, the final aspect of getting into shooting position, um, what comes to mind there in terms of advice that you would offer or maybe some areas where you see people you know, mess up a situation in that last little bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess one thing I do, whether it's right or wrong, but I find I'm more particular about it as I get, as I go along. And again, this is kind of like one of those things where in my mind and my gut, I know it's best, but I can't like definitively point maybe necessarily as to why I guess I've just over the years, just these small little nuances have kind of added up and made my belief uh, strong in this aspect is I think shooting sticks are basically the dumbest thing to be carrying around in the field um, for something <laughs> like that. I just, unless, unless you're really savvy with them and, you know, you know, you're just really experienced with them and it's, it's an extension of what you do, um, don't bother with those. Um, probably assume that you're going to be shooting from a seated position. Um, most people don't have a problem getting prone. You know, most people are relatively comfortable with that, but kind of be prepared to be in a shooting position, uh, uh, a sitting position when you shoot and use your pack. Um, I guess you guys know more about pack than I do, but I usually have hunters. That's the first thing that I do is I get them into camp before we can hunt the day they fly in. I set them up on their pack and teach them how to shoot off of a pack. Teach them, don't hold your rifle and set it on the pack. Hold your pack and set your rifle, you know, maybe in the crook of your thumb and your pointer finger. Because when you shoot, and this is the biggest thing, this is the biggest thing that I've had go wrong in guys shooting almost anything, but particularly shooting from a seated position, which is 75% of the shots on caribou in the open tundra, is they shoot, and then they, if they're holding their gun, they raise the gun up to throw in another round, well, then the pack and their rest falls to the ground. And so they just lost their rest for every shot after that. So that's one big thing. Um, another one is as soon as the caribou are alerted to your presence and 
you know, a lot of times I'll be pretty aggressive in the stock if I'm, let's say I'm 200 yards or 300 yards, let's say, you know, and you want to get as close as you can. You figure you're within shooting distance, probably get as close as you can. And as soon as one of them spots you or is alerted or you kind of know you're, you're going to get busted or spotted, don't set up until then if you're at all concerned about the distance you're shooting because usually they'll give you time, you know, probably more so than a lot of animals. Um, if you're concerned about them banding together, if they're in a big group, that's a big one. I've had caribou get away on, on a deal like that is they're banded too tightly together to get a clear shot. So that's another thing you have to take into consideration. You're in a big herd and the bull you're after and, you know, you're farther than what you'd like to be, but you're confident you can make the shot. If that one bull that you're after is in the open, you know, I, I would probably opt to, you know, if you're concerned if the herd's large enough and they're banded tightly together where there's a chance that, you know, you won't be able to take a shot if he's too close to others, I would probably opt for a longer shot if he's in the open. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's just common sense, but, um, you know, the more prepared and the better idea you have of what should be done and the um, movements and habits of the caribou, um, better chances you, you have, obviously. Listeners are probably uh, getting these two episodes back-to-back, but we're actually uh, weeks removed from when we recorded the first episode with you, and so I'm excited to get back and talk to you again. Uh, before we dive back into the caribou stuff, uh, as we record this, it's December 3rd, and there was just a pretty significant earthquake up in Alaska. I was just kind of curious from you personally, Billy, if you've been in contact with folks or kind of have any personal on-the-ground reports or, uh, you know... Um, damage assessments or anything like that from uh the earthquake in alaska and how that might affect things uh there for a bit well i don't watch television um so i I don't have you know what most people have seen on the news i haven't seen i was actually speaking with uh, some friends of mine um texting them communicating with them by text when it happened uh so they're okay everybody i know is, is all right but uh i've seen on social media a lot of people's uh, taxidermy mounts haven't fared so well. Uh, oh. So one friend of mine, they, they didn't want to go in their house because of all the aftershocks. And so they just stayed all, all night uh, drinking tequila as they had a big bonfire. <laughs> I guess it was a pretty good reason to have a party, apparently. It's the old earthquake celebration. I like it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Awesome. I guess that's as good a reason as any. Safety first, you know. That's funny. Nothing says uh, safety like bonfire and tequila. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. Um, Yeah, so let's, we, you know, we covered so much uh, good ground in in that first episode and, you know, kind of ended with talking about some shooting opportunities and shooting distances and approaches and things of that nature. I'm kind of curious just to start this conversation and dive in some after shot topics. Uh, And first of all, specifically, as you talk about hunting caribou and, you know, you're at the time of the year where you could potentially get them in velvet or they could be in the midst of, uh, you know, shedding that velvet. What, what advice do you have specifically if someone's there hunting full velvet and wants to care for that rack in the field? Say they have, you know, another four days before they're flown out of there. Um, what can they do to help care for that rack and that velvet? 
Okay, good question. Yeah, usually if you've got four days, like you said, and you've got access to like a creek or a pothole or a pond or something, then you could strip off the velvet, soak it in the water, but don't do it if, let's say, the plane's going to pick you up in two days. I wouldn't peel the velvet. I'd just leave it on because you're going to have a bloody mess uh, right afterwards. So, yeah, four days. If you want to peel it off, um, do so. But if it's any uh, closer to your pickup time than that, probably just leave the velvet. If you're real late in August, Generally in the Arctic, the bulls start shedding their velvet around uh, August 25th, kind of the norm. By early September, it's really, really loose. At that point, you probably might as well just peel it off. You know, if it's falling off, I would just go ahead and peel it. Try to soak it, get rid of the blood as much as you can. So that's probably about the best advice I'd have for dealing with the velvet. Okay. So when you say soak it, the main purpose there is just to get rid of some of that blood? Yeah, yep, the blood will wash out. Um, yeah, it'll just kind of uh, dilute it out. And most guys anymore, I, I don't, there are, there's, I'm not real familiar with it, but I know some taxidermists will freeze dry the velvet. So if the mm-hmm. velvet's in good tack, it's intact really well. That's probably the route I would go. Flocking is okay. Uh, I've never seen any flocking that really truly looks lifelike or realistic. Um, but obviously the freeze dried method is going to be a little better. Um, not sure what the cost difference is there, but if it were me, if I wanted to keep the velvet, I would go with freeze drying. Okay. Is flocking, is that the synthetic stuff? Uh, the, the, the flocking is correct. Yeah. Then they'll peel off all the real velvet and they basically paint with the paste and then flock it with synthetic fiber. Cool. Um, so meat care, this is a big one for me. I'm so used to hunting where there's trees and I'm thinking of this Arctic caribou hunt and thinking of it being very barren from trees. Um, and then obviously I want to get into cautions with predators, but first just in general meat care, uh, what advice do you have for people who are, you know, new to Alaska and maybe have this lower 48 experience where they might be, you know, hanging meat? What's, where do we start? Uh, any kind of brush that you can find, obviously, to keep it elevated. Bacteria grows with moisture, so rule number one is to get it dry. So that would mean getting it covered and having allowing air to get all the way around it. If you have to lay it on the tundra, you definitely want to elevate it, but usually you can find something. What I generally do if I don't have anything is the caribou antlers work well. Don't split the horns, at least not initially. Leave the rack whole. Put the rack so basically as if the caribou's nose was down in the ground and then his tops, the, 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 the tips of his antlers would go into the tundra. And that gives you a platform to hang your meat off of. And put a trekking pole or something like that on either end. Make a little lean-to shelter type um, canopy over top of it and you're, you're good to go. Just make sure it doesn't get wet and that'll keep in 50-degree weather for you know, a week if, if need be. Um, so typically, obviously, it's getting pretty cool at night, but just keep it as dry as you can. That's 95% of it. Yeah, good. So game, game bags, definitely bring game bags. And most areas you can uh, bone the meat. Um, most people would say it works better if you leave it on the bone. I usually leave the quarters on the bone. Um, 
one big thing that I like to do rather than cut the ribs in strips. Um, most people are probably familiar with a rib roll. Try to keep the meat in as big a pieces as possible, or at least the ribs and the scrap meat rather than just throwing it all together in a big ball. A lot of times that seems to uh, spoil a little bit quicker. If you got a big 70 pound bag of loose meat, um, or if you do jumble it up and, and rotate that once in a while. Steve definitely has some uh, rib roll experience now, don't you? Yeah, I learned the technique like last year, and it's like mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> can't believe I didn't do it for the prior fifteen years. <laughs> I literally is. We were working on that elk this September. I was like, I saw excitement in your eyes when it came to doing the rib roll. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of fun. Well, it's kind of like a piece of art. Yeah, it absolutely yeah. is. Like if you could finish with that perfectly clean rib cage, you did a good job. So yeah, if listeners, if you don't know what the rib roll is, I'm sure it's on YouTube or something. Yeah, and of course that's a good piece to eat too, especially late in the hunt when you're craving fat. Save one side of rib, start a fire, and cook it. I mean, that's that's mm. life at its greatest. There. <laughs> nice. I have to try that one. Um. So predator precautions. I'm thinking particularly in grizz country. Do you advise Billy doing anything of, you know, keeping human scent around the meats? You know, if, if particularly like say we're on a group hunt as we are personally going to be, if we're going to be leaving that meat potentially for a bit, do you advise leaving some clothes or something around that in terms of human scent or any other precautions? Uh, yeah, I usually, you know, take a piss around the kill, obviously, as you know, or if you don't, it's something you definitely want to know. Uh, the antlers have to, be your last load away from the kill site. So if you're packing away from your kill, you have to take 100% the meat before you ever move your antlers closer to your camp. So that's just one thing to be aware of. Um, I, I'm sure you guys are aware of that. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that in the regulations, which makes me think of a regulation question, not to get off topic, but you mentioned previously. We'll come back to the Grizz stuff. You, There's different rules for different, I think, units potentially in Alaska on whether you can or cannot bone out. Is that correct? Uh, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's pretty clear in the reg books. But, yes, some areas you can um, bone out different parts. The ribs is probably where there's the most um, differential. But, yeah, it's in the regs, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Do you have any insight into why they have different rules for different units and not just a statewide regulation on that? Um, my guess is it has something to do with the, uh, there's probably some political pressure, um, to do in some of those areas. I know that influences it to some degree, um, namely the natives, you know, if they're having problems with the meat. Um, I guess I don't know all the, the moving pieces, uh, as to why there's such a differential. Uh, I believe it has to do with some of the access into the areas, um, as far as if it's easier to um, get the meat out of it, I think that has some play in it. But yeah, I think there's a lot of, we've all wondered that. It, it shouldn't be that difficult, but it is what it is, I guess. All right, so back to kind of predator and grizz precautions. Uh, take a leak around the site, obviously. Um, what are your thoughts on maybe leaving some clothing or something, or you just pretty much try to take a leak on it, check on it, that type of thing? Yep, well, I don't take a leak on it. Maybe well, yeah, side, not maybe. on it, on the site, I, I, I should say, not on the meat. <laughs> uh, just, yeah, um, yeah I, I often leave something behind. It doesn't hurt. Um, I don't. It, that's not a foolproof method by any means, but it doesn't hurt. Uh, aside from that, I usually always have a tarp with me. 
so if you don't uh, pack it all out, first off, first thing is make sure you butcher the thing that night, 100%. Caribou doesn't take too long. Um, you don't want that laying on the tundra. So even if you don't get it packed all back to camp that day, at least have it 100% butchered. Um, so one tarp, anyways, you can cover the meat that you leave behind, you know, an 8 by 10 tarp. And then from there, uh, the next day you get back to it, um, pack out the rest of the meat, get it back to camp, keep it all. I like to keep it about 20 to 30 yards away from my tent. If you go any farther than that, if a bear wants it, he's definitely going to take it. Um, I've had bears come in and steal it, and I've literally set it a few feet from my tent, and they'll still sneak in and steal it. They're very, very smart, particularly an old bear. Um, I had one, the bugger stole some meat, and then he didn't come for two days. And then it was a real big stormy night, and so the tent was flapping. And I literally, like I could have reached out my tent and grabbed the meat. Woke up in the morning, the meat was gone because I couldn't hear him, and he knew that. So they're, they're a smart darn critter, um, but I always keep all the meat together straight out the door of the tent. Everybody knows where it is, you know, for a safety reason. And keep it close enough to kind of deter the bear, but at the end of the day, you know, you can tie some pots and pans to it. I've done that before to wake you up. The biggest thing that I've found is if a bear's on your meat, don't take a pistol, don't yell, don't do anything. Just zip open your tent, stick the biggest rifle you can out the door, make sure the bear knows you're there. At that point, 99% of the time you will, and don't give them any warning. Just fire that rifle into the air. Usually it's at night, the muzzle blast, the fire, that big boom, nine times out of ten, will scare him away at least for that night. If he runs away and he turns and he looks back within about 40 yards, that bear's going to be back. If he runs away for about 200 yards before he turns and looks back, you're probably rid of him. But I guarantee you, if he looks back within 50 yards, he's coming back. Uh, if that doesn't scare him, um, you're going to have issues. So the reason why I don't yell or anything like that is just like a kid. If you yell at him and there's and you know it's not very severe and then there's no real repercussion, pretty soon he realizes you're not going to hurt him. So you want to do everything in your power to scare the wits out of him the very first time and hope he doesn't come back. A pistol, in my experience, 50% of the time, it just agitates the bear even more. So I, I don't use a pistol to scare a bear. I use a pistol basically to, or I would, I've never had to kill one in defense with a pistol, um, is don't use the pistol to try to scare them uh, unless it's really your last resort other than shooting it. Because a lot of times they just, they just get all the more aggressive. So use the rifle. Try to scare them the first go around. If you do get them coming into camp, um, that's where air taxi selection or outfitter selection is pretty key. Some guys, you're all on your own until pickup day. Other guys will recognize the danger and the problem and do what they can to come get your meat out of camp. So that's a big question for your outfitters. Like, hey, if we get a caribou down early, you know, can we, if we let you know, you know, can you come and pick it up early? Some guys, they might, a lot of them will probably tell you yes. A lot of guys probably won't act on it as much as others. But some outfitters are really good about that, and that's a key question because uh, it'll keep the meat a lot better, obviously, if they can get it back in town and hang it somewhere totally dry, but it also alleviates the problem or some of the problem for bears getting into camp. 
So that's a big question to ask your outfitter or air taxi. So that's, mm. that's probably about all I've got on that topic. No, that's good. What the, so what caliber of pistol do you pack on your pack or your hip belt? Uh, I've got a, a 44 mag. I've got a scandium titanium uh, Smith and Wesson. So it's like 26 ounces. So the only time that I really rely on that is when I'm sheep hunting. Um, so if I'm caribou hunting, I usually bring a rifle. I carry a 375 H&H. Obviously, that's overkill for a caribou, um, but for the backup factor and the grizzly factor. So if I was hunting with a buddy, though, I mean, I wouldn't hesitate. Even when I'm guiding, maybe occasionally, if I'm just packing the meat out, I'll just carry that pistol, you know, just for self-defense. Mm-hmm. Any other advice for bear encounters? I mean, what you said there, just like that little tip on if they turn back within 40, 50 yards, they'll probably come in. Like those little things are really good to know about bear behavior and bear encounters. Not necessarily just an encounter in camp, but just in general. Uh, what other kind of basics would you have guys know about being in Alaska and being in Grizz country? If a bear stands up on his hind feet, usually, I'm not going to say that you're safe, but usually at that point, you've got the upper hand. He's standing up. Everything in nature happens for a reason and a purpose. That bear's standing up to try to intimidate you. Just like when you guys are out getting drunk and lippy at a bar, or we all are, and, uh, you know, you start to get in a skirmish, what's the first thing the guy does? He tries to look as big as he can, right? He sticks his chest out, stands up tall, and, you know, sets his drink aside and acts like he's going to kick the crap out of you. The bear, he's standing up because he's trying to intimidate you. So, Right there, that tells you he doesn't have a lot of confidence. He's, he's sizing you up. So always stand your ground with a bear. Uh, if he's standing up, popping his teeth, you're in pretty good shape. Don't get too nervous. If he, if he stays down low and starts to slink in like a cat, pins his ears back, and then tucks down into, like, predator stealth mode, don't crap your pants, but you're in trouble. <laughs> that bear <laughs> So <laughs> be ready. There it's probably time to, you know, stand your ground with the guy next to you. Know who's going to wing the warning shot. But whoever's with you, try to gather together so you look like one big massive unit. Okay, because if a bear thinks that you're three animals, that's, that behooves him. Because he is gonna, he's just gonna run in and try to figure that your guys are gonna scatter, and he's gonna take whichever one's easiest. So you want to look like one big unit, uh, one big animal, one big adversary. Um, so yeah, if he's popping teeth, standing up, you're pretty good. A lot of times they will, they'll bluff charge. I would say within 15 yards, if he's still coming, he probably ain't gonna stop. I guess that's probably about my threshold of comfort if he's still coming and he has that body language like he means business um i had a bear actually my newest dvd that i'm coming out with here in about a week called spirit of a sheep hunter we had a bear get into our camp this thing wouldn't leave us alone it was a matter of time before we had to kill him young bear wasn't being super aggressive but i mean we'd wing 300 mag rounds over his head right in the dirt in front of him and he wouldn't even flinch finally we took, the pilot was coming in to pick us up. We had killed the sheep the night before, and he had stolen our meat, like, right off of our tent. So the pilots were coming in to pick us up. We called them, and they said, yeah, we'll be there right away. And so we took our sleeping pad, a yellow Neo Air mattress, pulled it out, left it inflated, and went to set it 
on either end of a runway because uh, the pilot hadn't landed, landed there before. And the bear saw that sleeping pad, and that threw him off more than uh, rifle fire. That's the only thing that kept us from having to kill that bear until the pl- planes landed. And interestingly, we pack up our stuff, hop in the airplane, and we were just taxiing out and taking off, and that bear had already come back and was licking the blood off the willow bush where the meat had hung, and we're only 80 yards away in an airplane taking off. So they can be pretty darn brazen, so anything you can use to your advantage, you know, think outside the box. Um, yeah, that's, that's probably about what I got for, for bear safety. Yeah, wow. Have you ever, maybe personally or with a client or probably know someone who's had to take a, a self-defense measure on a bear and actually uh, shoot at, injure, or kill that bear? Yeah, oh yeah, lots of guys. Um, I've never had to shoot one in defense of life and property. Wounded bears, you know, charging in the brush, just had one this last fall. Uh, that one died at five steps away, so that one was rather exciting, um, but it definitely happens. Had, I know one guy, the bear's head was in the vestibule of his tent, and he had used 20 rounds to try to scare the bear away. This was on the Alaska Peninsula, and his last round went into the bear's head as the bear was weaseling his head under the vestibule of his tent to try to get at his food, and so he shot him like two feet off the muzzle of his rifle, so the bear more or less died inside of his vestibule. <laughs> so that's getting pretty darn close. If someone has to go through that encounter, uh, what's protocol? Like, is that just something you report as soon as you get back to town to fish and game? Or what, what should a hunter know if, God forbid, they have to, you know, defend themselves against a bear? Yep. So you've got to skin it out. You've got to salvage uh, on a grizzly bear only the hide. If you're in an area with a black bear where you would legally have to salvage the meat, you would have to salvage the meat. But for a grizzly bear, you would just have to salvage the hide and the skull. Uh, I don't know if it's 10 days. or I can't just remember the wording, but we always have sack phones and stuff. So, I mean, we just call a fishing game right away if it happens. But there is a, a time frame, I want to say 10 days, after the uh, incident. But you have to forfeit the hide and the skull. It's not as big a deal as what a lot of people think. You know, the old adage is, oh, you better have scratch marks or blood on your face or something before you shoot one. You know, a grizzly bear and a brown bear, it's almost like a skunk or a raccoon in other places. You know, people recognize that they're a menace. As long as you're, you know, just see the bear 100 yards away because he's close, you shoot him. As long as you're not doing that, if you feel threatened and it's justified, then I've never really heard of anybody getting into too much trouble. One other thing I'll mention, the electric fences, the bear are battery-powered or solar-powered electric fences. Not a bad idea. I can tell you by first-hand knowledge they don't always work, but i got to figure that, that oftentimes they will deter a bear from coming in. So that's not a bad idea to bring one along. Any other advice for camp setup? Again, like going back and equating to maybe – Hunters in the lower 48 who might hang their food or something like that, but that's just not possible uh, up in this area. How can we help keep a, a quote-unquote clean camp, if you will, if that's even possible, to try and deter or at least prevent some of these encounters? Yeah, I used to put my food out from the tents, but honestly I found that 
you pretty well got to protect it a little closer to the vest than that. And I usually just keep my food right in the tent, um, you know, cause once they get in and they get a taste of something, then it's a lot harder to keep them away because they're going to come into your camp. These old bears, uh, they're smart. I just had one last year. Like I definitively watched, we shot a boar, a little bit of a long story, but this is how these bears are. They're very smart and they are, they get trained into hunters. They know what they can get away with. They know what they can't. They'll live sometimes over 30 years. So we were watching two grizzly bears in the Arctic. Uh, one was five miles away. One was four. The bigger one was five. Went over. We shot him. The, the other one was a mature boar, so he was our backup in case we didn't get the first one. So we shoot the, the big bear, and as we're skinning him, here comes this other boar walking right past us very fast. He's up on a ridge about 300 yards away, and he's looking at us as he's walking, but he's beelining it straight in this one direction. And it was this very odd bear behavior. And I couldn't figure out what he was doing. He just kept on walking. Well, then when the pilot picked up the bear hide, we came to find out that uh, three days earlier, uh, uh, some do-it-yourself caribou hunters had a grizzly bear in camp, stole a bunch of their meat. And I said, well, where is this camp? And they pointed it out. It was about four miles beyond where we had shot this grizzly bear. And that's in direct line of where that bear was going. So that bear, when he heard us shoot, he figured it was the caribou camp uh, from where he had stolen the caribou a few days earlier, and he was heading marching there immediately um, because he obviously had been trained that those gunshots mean an easy meal. So that's the first time that I've ever firsthand see it take place that the old adage that gunshots are a dinner bell for the bears. It was absolutely 100%, no doubt in my mind, that was the case with this bear. So they're they're wise animals. If they can get away with something, they will. Wow, that's crazy. Good thing we're bow hunting, Steve. No, <laughs> <laughs> no that's funny because we had the same. When, yeah, our caribou hunt two years ago. We, you know, Lenny killed his caribou like three miles away. We packed it back to camp, and then mine I killed that night two hundred yards from camp, and and we had a grizzly bear not six seven hundred yards up the hill, and we were definitely on edge all night long, waiting to you know hear a bear rub, rummage around the outside of the tent. Did he ever come in? Uh, nope, never did. Yeah, at least not that we know of. Um, we, the meat, we had a fox drag some meat off, but that was that was about it. Okay. Yeah, so some of them are honest. They're all they're just like people. Some of them, they'll, they'll push the envelope, but others, you know, they, they know it's bad news, and they'll stay away. Yeah. Oh, so I was joking, Billy, about us just bow hunting, because I think we're going to have a, a mix of weapons on the trip, but since I thought of that, do you have any thoughts on for caribou specifically on choosing weapon, maybe between bow rifle or if you're, if you have a guy who's, you know, primarily a bow hunter, would you recommend that he just brings a rifle as a backup? Uh, I know that's personal, a uh, personal decision, but what are your thoughts on that in general? Uh, well, what I tell most clients, uh, what I've, this is my first hand experience. I've never shot a caribou. I've never shot any ma- animal in Alaska for myself, um, as far as that goes. But what I've found is that for the guys who are on the fence and if you bring, uh, two weapons, not saying that you shouldn't bring a rifle if you're a bow hunter, I, I think that's a good idea. But for a lot of guys, this is what happens. They get into a scenario, they see some caribou and the whole time, this is their thought process, and these are their words. Should, should, I just, should I just bring the rifle? Should I leave the bow? Should I leave the bow? Should I bring the rifle? What should I do? What should I do? And it ruins the experience. So my suggestion is, if you're on the fence, 
just bring the rifle rather than, you know, paint your experience with a whole bunch of worry and stress. Just enjoy the journey, the adventure, and, and just do the right. If, and it's about a, you've got a less than 10% chance if, of shooting something with a bow if you have a rifle along, uh, on the average. You know, this is my experience. I, I'm all for a guy who bring, who's bringing a bow and just says, you know, I'm going to do it with a bow or nothing. I'm, I'm all for it. Um, you know, not to say that if you bust the caribou and, with the bow and they run out and they're a hundred yards away and there's a rifle on hand that I, I won't grab the rifle and shoot it. But so it's kind of a personal question, I guess, definitely bring a rifle for safety if for no other reason. But I guess just be honest with yourself on the forefront, you know, if you, you know, can't, would rather go home with an animal than risk just trying with a bow and maybe not getting one. I guess my suggestion, if you're on the fence, the the bow at home. I didn't think of that line of thought, Billy. Like on it, on that decision, adding stress. Um, I didn't think of that in the forefront of my mind, but I think kind of subconsciously that's where I was at because I I've been wrestling on you know, do I bring a bow? Do I bring a bow and a rifle? Do I only bring a bow and then use somebody else's rifle if I decide? And you know, it, I kind of felt that. I didn't put that word to it, but I was kind of feeling that anxiety of like this is making it more complicated uh, than it probably needs to be and somewhat taking away from the enjoyment of like, let's just go and have the experience type thing. Both of my trips to Alaska, we, we did the exact same thing. It was let's hunt with a bow. And then if it comes down the last few days, we still haven't killed something. We'll pull a rifle out. Uh, and, and Billy mentioned you're packing that rifle regardless, but it, every single time, like on, when Lee killed his caribou that day, we, I was packing the rifle for him. He was the, the shooter. So he had his bow and then, we got to a point where it was like caribou were out there 150 yards, didn't think it was going to happen with a bow, so he handed me his bow, I handed him the rifle, and he went and shot it. And It definitely just adds that uh, adds that stress and that decision-making, and especially, you know, you've you got an animal right there in front of you. And, um, yeah, I like Bill's advice there. If you're, if you're going to be happy killing with a rifle one way or the other, just, just do it. Yeah, I think that's where, I'm, that's where I'm at. That's what I've been leaning to, and I guess it complicates it, too, a little bit, because I'm left-handed, and I've pretty much shot right-handed guns my whole life. So that wouldn't be an issue, but I'm like, nobody else is going to have a bow set up like mine. So I definitely have to bring my bow clearly. Um, and then in the end, that's what I came down to. It's like, I would be so happy just having this hunt and having this experience regardless of, you know, how I kill a caribou. And so that's pretty much, I was like, well, if I'm going to be happy killing it with a rifle, I'm just going to bring my rifle. Yeah. And you're going to learn so much about caribou hunting. You know, if you're in a spot where they're crossing a river in front of you, if you're on a knoll, you've got a brushy creek bottom, you know, that's, that's like a perfect setup for a bow hunter. But if you're just spotting and stalking through the open tundra, holy smokes, that's a tough challenge with a bow and arrow. It's tough enough with a rifle sometimes. So yeah, so that's my best advice. I think you guys are absolutely right. You're already kind of feeling that angst or anxiety, whatever you want to call it. So, but to each his own, but that's just been my experience with guys in the past. Yeah. Good. So on the topic of predators still, Billy, what about wolves? Uh, and even turning a, a caribou hunt into combination wolf hunt for non-residents uh, in a lot of areas, from what I think from what I've seen, it's it's pretty reasonable to pick up a wolf tag as well. Is that correct? Yep, yep. Most areas that I know of, usually August 10th, some areas, to the best of my recollection, no closed season. Some areas, you don't even need a tag. 
But yeah, for the most part, it's like 10 wolves a year. So it's usually you, not many guys fill up on wolves in a two week hunt. So definitely get a tag, uh, no matter where you are, you've definitely, you know, you've got a chance of seeing a wolf. Um, if we can, uh, Billy, just get into a few gear topics, uh, while we have some time. One of the first things that, that came up for me when thinking about this hunt and planning for this hunt and one of the first categories I was trying to make some decisions in was understanding what to do for, uh, waders and boots. So, you know, hip waders versus over boots versus chest waders and that whole discussion. And again, that can obviously depend on exactly where you're headed, but what, what do you use, uh, and what do you recommend that guys consider, uh, for an Alaskan caribou hunt in terms of waders? If you're getting dropped, are you guys getting dropped off with wheel planes on ridge tops? Uh, yeah, yeah, either that or a, it's a, a lake. They, they got a plane of floats last year, I believe, and so they're dropping off on some lakes, but, um, yeah, pretty much it's going to be open tundra with, with a few river crossings. Okay. What I use, what I prefer, so like when I go up, sometimes I'll go up in the fall for three months straight. So I've got to have stuff that's really versatile. Uh, what I generally use anymore is just Wiggy's waders, those little one pound nylon slip on creek crossing. They basically, they last about 10 to 20 creek crossings and then they're shot. But that's what I bring uh, just because they're light. You can pack them around. They're just made for crossing in a creek, not wading around in it. So if you're getting dropped off with a float plane, you're probably going to want real breathable waders. So I would try to nail them down your air taxi on that. Um, but I've had good luck with just hunting boots and gaiters and then just using those wiggy waders whenever I need to cross a creek. And, you know, if you've got somebody who doesn't have them, you can just put a rock in them, toss them across the creek to the next guy. They're pretty quick. And I don't like to have that, um, they're waders for me they're a little bit cumbersome when you're stalking you know going a long ways having that restriction that extra layer uh it tires me out pretty quick uh, so i like the freedom of being able to take the waders off when i don't need them and what do you what do you use for boots or recommend i use uh crispies i started using those a couple of years ago um i'm not a even for sheep hunting i'll use those i don't really like real stiff boots right now i'm walking around in the woods with my dog um i've got a pair of loas uh, those are pretty good the old original mindles are pretty good the ones with cabela's name on them they're they're comfortable but they're pretty much junk they don't last very long uh kind of treks i think those are those are good uh they never really worked for my feet definitely don't get them too close to a fire or a stove or the uh the sole will um, the glue will let loose. I've had a lot of guys have that happen. They try to dry them out and then they let loose. But I think they're a pretty good boot. Um, Sharpas are good. You know, I think that's all pretty much a personal preference for the most part. Yeah. But just like anything, you get what you pay for. You know, you're looking at 400 bucks to get a good pair of boots. But I like the Crispies just because they're not too stiff. Uh, they can handle pretty much anything. Um, so they're a good, happy medium for me. You know, using the same boot for sheep, brown bear, moose, caribou, everything. Yeah. How do you feel just in general about leather versus synthetic for, for Alaska? Um, are you talking like, I'm not, I'm not super savvy with the synthetics. I've tried the, like the coal flax, those hard plastic ski boots. Yeah. I, I just like meant, them. Right. Yeah. Do you, so do you tend to just stick to full leather then? 
Yeah, I figure I look at the creator. If God made it or man made it, I'm going to go with whatever God created. I find that usually the best. Nice. <laughs> I like it. Just a big general question on shelters. As, as floorless shelters get more and more popular, how do those work out for Alaska, particularly in the tundra? Do you uh, see those used much there? Would you recommend something a bit more traditional with a full bathtub? Give us some thoughts there. Um, I just, this year I used, uh, one of the new stone glacier skyscraper tents. Um, that was, that's a, that's a good tent. Um, it, uh, if you, you're going to be pretty cozy with your buddy, that's for darn sure. You know, that's a sheep tent. Uh, we also used a, a Kafaru teepee. Uh, I think it was called the tut. That teepee worked really good. The big uh, disadvantage to a teepee is bugs, which can yeah. be brutal. I would definitely plan for bugs any time of year, but if you're going hunting in the Arctic before the 20th of August, they can like ruin your trip potentially. So you definitely have to be ready for that. The teepee works good for cooking and just a shelter to get away and store your gear. And then if the weather is such, and they're light, you know, they're very lightweight, obviously. So they work pretty good for sleeping. I use them for spiking out when I'm sheep hunting. So that's been my experience with them. Um, and usually there we're getting good, solid tundra, uh, nice flat tundra. That isn't always the case where you're caribou hunting for sure. But I guess to answer your question, um, it's kind of a personal preference thing. Um, yeah, they could definitely work. But the biggest factor I would worry about on a caribou hunt is bugs. So mm-hmm. if it were me, I would bring... I would probably bring one and then bring like a minimalist tent, like the stone glacier I'm talking about, just something basically to sleep in. And then you can keep your cooking, um, that kind of stuff in your uh, teepee and all your gear. You can keep it dry. That works out pretty good. I have used teepees for a number of years just for a storage um, and, and cooking. So, yeah, I, I definitely would bring one. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, the, the idea of essentially like a camp-type shelter for, you know, as you mentioned, storage, cooking, drying, all that, versus separating that from a, a minimal sleep shelter was something I was considering for sure. Yep, yep, I would bring one for sure. Cool. So mid-August to mid-September, again, it's Alaska, conditions can vary, but what are your thoughts in general on sleeping bags and sleep system um, in terms of temperature rating for that time of year? Okay, yeah, good question. 20 would be you definitely a 20 degree bag. I wouldn't want to go, you know, with anything higher than that. Zero probably wouldn't hurt. I've seen it get down into single digits um, in early August, and that's the warmest month of the year in the Arctic. So, yeah, zero doesn't hurt. 20 at a minimum. Um, I just use a Mont Bell bag. I like that spiral design because it gives me a little more room. Um, so I, I would probably go with a good new 20, 20 degree bag. I like down, uh, just because of the weight factor primarily, um, that's probably a per- personal preference as much as anything, but you definitely got to keep that dry, obviously. So yeah, 20 degrees would be, uh, you definitely want to stay at that or lower for your yeah. temperature rating. Okay. In terms of clothing, one thing uh, I was thinking about for this trip was adding something like puffy pants. Are those something that you use? 
Absolutely. Those quick zip-off ones. Uh, First Light's got a pair. Montbell's got some. I'm sure Kuyu has one. Sitka probably has them. They're probably all over the place. Definitely, I use those a ton. You know, you walk up to your hill, you get settled in. I like to bring a glassing chair with me because that's that's 95% of what you're doing on a caribou hunt is you're just sitting there. So just to be comfortable, get one of those canoe chairs, those foldable canoe chairs. And then, yeah, you zip on those puffy pants and, you know, you just ride it out and let your eyes do the walking. What do you use for a glove system? Um, I've been using uh, First Light, uh, I think they call them grizzly gloves. They're like a, a glomet. They've got one finger and then your, your pointer finger is free. The other three fingers are in a mitten. Uh, those are pretty good, uh, you know, just for long-term sitting. Other than that, what I find works the best is just a simple pair of rag wool or even cotton. Um, I just, like, we call them roper gloves. You, the Western guys will call them roper gloves. I'll just buy them at a fleet supply, 10 of them for 10 bucks or whatever they are. Bring a couple of pairs of those. Uh, Sitka Stormfront gloves are really good, too. So a good a good uh, heavy-duty glove for glassing with a, a long gauntlet, you know, so the wrist is long to protect your wrist. Got it. And that's what I'd go with. Yeah. So puffy pants, the gloves, a good glove system, and then obviously good rain gear, kind of the three, the three things that stood out to me in terms of clothing and accessories to make sure I get dialed in addition to what I essentially already use for the lower 48. And obviously, I guess you could throw the, the waders or the overboots in with that. Is there anything else to you that stands out in terms of what guys with lower 48 hunting uh, clothing and apparel and accessories have but should consider for Alaska to add on to their list? Um, I like a really good jacket. Um, I've been, I work with First Light, and the one thing that I've been telling them in their line, kind of what they're missing for what I do is a good, heavy, puffy jacket with a windproof shell. And they made one this year. They sent me one. I got to use it. I love it. I don't remember the model of it, but it's their heaviest jacket with a hood. Um, so it's, it's got a nylon shell, and then it's poly, propyl, uh, poly uh, some poly fiber anyway. Um, so it dries out quick uh, and it cuts the wind, you know, so it's loud by, you know, Western standards. It might be a little bit loud, but that thing is worth its weight in gold for a hunt like that. Um, the other thing, wool, I, I really like wool again, the, the maker of wool. That's, that's what I'm going with. I've been using that now for 10 years. Of course, everybody's kind of wool is hot again now. Um, so I would definitely go with a wool layer against your skin. For me, wool underwear is a must. Chafing can be a big issue for those guys that have it um, or have had it. I Man, it can be brutal. <laughs> um, so I've never had an issue when wearing wool. So I always keep wool against my skin. Beyond that, uh, 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 not against my skin, then I always use synthetics. That's maybe just personal preference, but it seems to work best for me. Uh, one question I had for you, Billy, is when we went up, um, they told us that we didn't have to filter water out of the creeks, that uh, Giardia and stuff doesn't exist up there, which I was just like thought was crazy because um, we filter everything down here. But what's your experience there? Uh, the only time I've ever got sick off of water, I thought it was going to kill me. I was off the Hall Road and was eating or drinking it out of a stream right off the road, and the water, it smelled a little funny, but I've drank all the water everywhere else on the north side. Um, never had any issues. 
Um, and then a year later, um, there was a bunch of excavators digging in on the long side of that creek where we had taken the water. And me and the guy that I was with, like, I thought we were going to die, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I was so delirious. I, I woke up in the middle of the night. Uh, it was the first year I'd ever hunted up there, so it was 19 years ago. We got in there late at night. The outfitter I was guiding for, he had just bought the camp, so it was just he and I. So I went in the creek, got some water. We drank some water. Uh, cooked supper, went to bed. Woke up in the middle of the night. My head was just pounding, the worst headache I ever had in my life, and I could barely walk. So I was in my underwear, stumbled outside to take a leak, and when I woke up, my underwear were around my ankles, and I was laying in gravel, and there was a pool of blood. I'd fall, and I'd passed out face first in the gravel, <laughs> and I was just like hypothermic because it was like 40 degrees, you know? <laughs> so I stuck back into camp, and my boss is like, Willie, what the hell's the matter with you? I said, I don't know. I think I'm dying. And he said, well, let's get you to Fairbanks. And I'm like, I'm going to be dead before we get to Fairbanks. That was 400-mile drive, you know? And uh, so next thing I know, I'm trying to get some aspirin. And I remember falling down, hitting my head on a stool. And then I wake up and I look. And then there's my boss. He's laying beside me. And there's a big pool of vomit beside him. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, I'm gonna, this is the way I'm going to go out. This is pretty inglorious, <laughs> you know. And uh, so we, I go to drink some water, and the water smelled like burnt, rotten pork chops. And I'm like, right then, I'm like, okay, this water is bad. And so anyways, we quit drinking the water, drank out of the river. You know, this, the water had a current. It was kind of like a, a tundra uh, canal, really. So we took water out of the creek right next to it, and we were fine. didn't smell and uh, so we both were, you know, we both ended up just fine. It went away. And then the next year we came there and there's excavators digging this hole right next to that creek. And we asked the excavators what they were doing. They said, oh, there was a chemical spill here in the 70s uh, when they were putting in the pipeline. And so we're just here cleaning that up. Oh, so out of goodness. all that water that I've drank, drank all, all over the years, um, you know, it was something man put there that almost killed us. So Wow. So now you don't have to filter water is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I, there's no beavers in it. Yeah, I, I mean, and I yeah. drink the beaver water. I've heard people say some people are immune to it. I grew up, and I'm a terrible swimmer. I grew up swimming in lakes, so I've drank lots of beaver piss. I've never gotten it. But the city guys that drink the chlorinated water, um, yeah, they've gotten it before. If they're sloppy, pretty good chance they're going to get it. Not in the Arctic. There's no beavers. Not that you have to have beavers to get Giardia. You can get it from anything. But, yeah, I've, we've never had any issue uh, in the Arctic with water. As long as it's got movement to it. Mm. Well, Billy, I know that, uh, you know, shoot, we have two hours worth of conversation here, and I still have other questions and things like that. I'm sure listeners do too, but I also know you have some good resources out there in terms of your gear lists and obviously your hunting films, and you even have some new projects in the works. Where would you point listeners to if they want to kind of either just learn more about hunting in Alaska in general or check out uh, some of the resources that you have to offer specifically? Uh, yeah, my website would be the, the best uh, location. You can uh, just Google search the modern-day mountain man, and you'll find my stuff. Um, or my website is billymolsadventures.com. Yeah, ever since I started in Alaska 21 years ago, I've been filming all the hunts and producing videos. About 12 years ago, I started producing videos. Did a little bit of freelance writing, wrote a book, working on a second one now. Uh, my latest project is a sheep hunting dvd that i think whether you're a sheep hunter or not 
I think this is, I'm really excited for this one to come out. It'll be out in a week or so. Uh, the other project that I'm working on is a workout DVD that's specifically designed for hunters. So it'll minimize your workout time, maximize your efficiency. And it's a three workout set and it's for guys of any fitness level. I mean, it kicks my butt when I do it, but there's, uh, each move, most of the movements have a, an alternative method to make it a little bit easier if you need it as you're going through it. But in essence, the video allows you, it has an instructional version and an advanced version. The instructional versions, like any other hunting DVD or a workout DVD rather, shows someone demonstrating the movements and a trainer uh, describing the techniques and what you're working on. And then once you master the movements, you would move on to the advanced version of each workout by which each movement is introduced one repetition is shown, and then the repetitions go to a small corner screen, and then the main screen comes alive with Alaska hunting footage. So you basically get to watch, you know, 65-inch bull moose and 10-foot bears and herds of caribou and doll sheep, and you're watching a hunting video as you're working out to help motivate and inspire you. All the time I have a general um, motivational voiceover going on throughout each video. So... I'm pretty excited. I know it's going to help a lot of guys out. I think that holds a lot of people back uh, hunting in Alaska or just life in general, you know, is that fear or question, hey, am I, can I handle this? Is this something I can do? This was designed to, to help guys realize their dream hunts is to give them the confidence that, hey, I can, I can tackle this. I can climb these mountains. I can get this done. So that's, that's my latest, and I think guys are really going to benefit from it. I'm excited for it to get released. I think it's a, a real good product. It's going to help a lot of guys. Uh, realize their their hunting ambitions yeah that sounds unique for sure i like it can you uh spill the beans on what your second book that you're working on is about uh yeah my second book the working title is god and grizzly bears um you know i think part of the really what alaska is about for me is the adventure getting yourself not, not necessarily that you have to throw yourself into it but you know alaska is I think part of the, the mystique and the mystery is that it's um, it's harsh, it's lonely, it's unforgiving, and you hit it hard enough and you do it enough, sooner or later you're going to find yourself in a position where you, you're you not sure that you can overcome it. And the old adage is adventure begins when things go wrong. You go hunting in Alaska in 10 days, to some degree or another something's going to go wrong. And I think that's what makes it addicting is that you learn more about yourself, uh, what you're capable of, and what's really valuable to you in life. And that's that's what basically the the whole gist and the premise of God and Grizzly Bears is going to be, is what I've learned through the times where I thought I was going to die in a river or uh, airplane crashes or one thing or next is how you get out of it, what you learn from it. And for me, that's what hunting in Alaska is all about, the personal journey. That's cool. Yeah, well said. Well, Billy, man, appreciate the time. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Yep, my pleasure, guys. Happy to do it anytime. There you have it, guys. If you made it this far, you definitely should go enter the giveaway. There's a link in the show description. Hit that link. It takes just a couple of seconds to enter. And we, again, are giving away five different prize packages for these five episodes celebrating the five years of the podcast. Just wanted to say thank you to you guys not only for tuning in, but also the continued support. And again, this giveaway is simply a way to give back to you guys. So hit that link, get entered, and tune back in tomorrow for another episode.